This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning, there's some strong language in this episode. Canberra is Australia's foggiest city. In fact, you can find fog in Canberra about 50 days of the year. And being number one on the foggy city list has some really annoying side effects, like in particular, huge delays at the airport. There was a fog, so the planes were delayed. It was during one of those delays that Jeannie Morosi found herself with nothing to do. She'd been working in Canberra as a political staffer, and she was heading home to Sydney for a break. I walked around the airport toward the bookshop because that was my favourite shop. <laughs> and uh, looked around for something to read when this book fell into my hands. What do you mean, literally? Well, I was looking at this thing fell. And you caught it? I caught it. It was The Quiet Revolution by Jim Cairns. Junie knew who Jim Cairns was. He was that bookish but charismatic Labour MP who'd been a prominent leader of the anti-war movement. I have always said if I were 20 years old and required to go into the army under conscription in relation to a war like Vietnam, I would not go. Now that Whitlam was elected, Cairns was a government minister and Junie was holding his book. She took this as a sign. I believe in synchronicity, and it obviously was the book I was meant to read. From the page one, it just took me. And I went, boarded the plane when it was ready, got home, and stayed up all night reading this book. Junie was so fascinated by the book that she became consumed with curiosity about the man who wrote it. And so... I definitely needed to meet him. When she got back to Canberra, she arranged a meeting with Jim Cairns. As a political staffer, she'd made lots of meetings with other ministers, but this was the first time she'd made one for personal reasons. Ginny walked over to Cairns' office and found a disorganised row of people lined up in chairs waiting to see him. No one has a definite appointment. It's like... First come, first serve, and I arrive and they wave me in. Jim Cairns had been sitting behind the desk, but he stood up quickly when Junie walked in. A very attractive man, which is unlike most of the politicians I had seen before. A youthful demeanour. Junie peppered Jim with questions about his book, and Jim asked her questions too. Instantly, the two hit it off. Our conversation went on for an hour. I was a bit concerned about all these people (laughs) waiting to see him. Eventually, Junie said she had to go. But there was still so much more to talk about. So Junie went out on a limb and she asked Jim to have dinner with her. Like, straight after work, that night. I would say I'm fairly assertive. Jim said yes. And what he didn't know was that he was about to embark on a spiritual journey a private psychological and sexual awakening that would coincide with the peak of his political power and his elevation to Treasurer and Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Sexual energy is the life force. I happen to discover the life energy. It opened up a whole different universe, if you like. Kind of blew his mind. But while Jim Cairns was discovering himself the government was beginning a descent into chaos. Inflation is Labor's greatest failure. No way you're going to resign. If demands for energy are to be met, 
Drastic new steps must be taken. He was booed and heckled. Oh, four billion dollars. A cyclone is imminent. I'm Alex Mann, and this is The Eleventh. So you've heard how the Whitlam government was off to a rocky start in terms of its relationship with the US and in terms of its relationship with the security establishment. But Whitlam didn't get elected so that he could please Nixon, the CIA and ASIO. He got elected so that he could implement his big program of reforms for Australia. But here's the thing about Gough Whitlam. He was good on the vision thing. In fact, he was so good on the vision thing that sometimes it seemed like he wanted to avoid the realities of everyday politics, the compromises, the concessions, paying attention to the optics. He wanted to rise above it all. And you can hear this in the stories that people tell about him. Like the one about the time he was approached by a young media baron on the rise, a guy called Rupert Murdoch. Rupert was leftish inclined. In those days, in my early dissociation with him, I was I admired him. John Menadue knew Rupert Murdoch well. You actually heard from John Menadue in episode one. He was there outside Parliament House as his family arrived to hear Whitlam deliver that famous speech. But at this point in our story, Menadue is working for Rupert Murdoch, running his fledgling national newspaper called The Australian. I admired what he was doing, that uh, the establishment of The Australian, a national paper a different sort of voice in the country, uh, one that wasn't part of uh, the establishment. So it was quite refreshing uh, to be working for Murdoch, at least then. Today, Murdoch's name is associated with right-wing news networks like Fox News in the US. But back then, things were very different. Then, Murdoch was an outsider, trying to shake up the conservative establishment. And when Whitlam became a chance of winning the 1972 election, Murdoch saw an opportunity. He saw Whitlam and was anxious to ride to power with him. In the lead-up to Whitlam's election, John Menadue took it upon himself to become a sort of matchmaker for Whitlam and Murdoch. He wanted them to spend time together. But Whitlam wasn't very interested in striking up a bromance. I had the job of going to golf and saying, hey, you know, we want you to be socially nice and pleasant. Come along to this two or three hours on the harbour with Rupert. And Goff said, comrade, I'm too fucking busy. I'm too effing busy. And, he, and then he said, well, Margaret do. Margaret was Goff's wife. And I said, no, Margaret will not do. You've got to come. I've told Margaret the story, so... She, she understood. She understood Goff as well. But how he came along and it was, it worked well. Rupert threw his lot in, boots and all, in the campaign. He gave us free advertising. This is Eric Walsh. He was Whitlam's press secretary and he was a part of the campaign team that got Whitlam elected. Nobody outside the Labor Party and a lot of people inside the Labor Party did as much as Rupert. Eric Walsh was convinced that keeping Murdoch on side would be useful. Like John Menadue, he tried to ensure their relationship continued. He advised Whitlam to nurture the friendship. Walsh tried again and again, and eventually he got Whitlam to agree. 
this time for dinner. So I rang Rupert and Rupert said, you know, that's fine, we'll have uh, dinner for three. That's me and Rupert and uh, golf. But on the way there, Whitlam bumped into someone else he knew. So he ditched Rupert and went to dinner with the other guy instead. But that was the end of it. You know, Rupert realised that he was never going to get anywhere. It seemed like Whitlam had decided he didn't need Murdoch's help. So the attempts at matchmaking were never going to work. Goff didn't like him at all. Sceptical of him. Kept his distance. And he often said to me, I'm not going to be beholden to anyone. Considering what lay ahead, a supportive news baron could have been handy. But Whitlam didn't care. You know, he was the crash or crash through politician with the beautiful arrogance, as people used to say. I look at it, and it almost seems like he was so focused on implementing his program of reforms that it was as if he didn't see the need for a strategy to ensure his own political survival. Up until this point, it had worked well for him. I mean, he was the prime minister after all. But that attitude was about to become a huge problem because Whitlam's mission was soon to be interrupted by two huge scandals of his government's own making. And on top of all of that, a global economic crisis. In late 1973, an economic tremor began in the Middle East and started rippling towards Australia and its one-year-old government. The price of oil, and therefore petrol, was skyrocketing. They called it the oil crisis. Fuel experts warn that if demands for energy are to be met, drastic new steps must be taken. Otherwise, the crisis will hit disaster level. In Australia, unemployment and inflation started rising. The next few months will be quite difficult. We are all in this together, not just as Australians, but as members of a world community, all experiencing times of profound difficulty together. The long post-war boom years were over. The nation-shaping suite of policies that Gough Whitlam had created during the good times was now facing serious economic headwinds. But the program was the program, and Gough Whitlam pressed on regardless while the opposition started to press their advantage. Inflation is Labor's greatest failure. It's the highest rate for 20 years and going up. The opposition blocked Whitlam's agenda in the Senate, where they had the numbers to knock back legislation. The government couldn't get anything done, so Whitlam decided to call an early election. But this time, there were fewer people in his corner. The business establishment and others, they were getting highly critical of of Whitlam. At the 1972 election, news baron Rupert Murdoch had almost been an extension of the Labor Party's campaign. But now he was running straight down the middle. He didn't make a final decision on it. He was getting a bob each way. It was left reasonably open. As you can see there, Labor running a little bit over 50%, which is... Election night 1974 began in a promising way for Whitlam. Once again... Half of the Australian people, at least, have voted for the Labor Party in the House of Representatives. But as the count wore on, it became clear that the election hadn't quite worked out the way Whitlam had planned. Whitlam did win the election, but this time by a smaller margin, nine seats down to five. And in reality, the win simply laid the groundwork for his final demise. Because while the voters had reaffirmed his authority to govern, he still didn't have a majority in the Senate, and the opposition was as determined as ever to block his agenda. It would lead to a stalemate that would eventually cause a constitutional crisis. 
Willem did something else after the election that would have big consequences down the track. He elevated Jim Cairns, the socialist-leaning librarian type from Labor's left, to Deputy Prime Minister and eventually Treasurer. Well, congratulations on your new portfolio, sir. Thank you very much. It's quite obviously going to be a very difficult time ahead for you. Very difficult, yes. The fact that a socialist anti-Vietnam War activist was now one step away from the Prime Ministership caused panic in some quarters. He was the guy that Nixon and Kissinger were most worried about. But Jim Cairns had bigger problems close to home. Domestically, he was in charge of an economy in freefall. Business profits were collapsing, there was a housing boom on the verge of bust, and industrial disputes and unemployment were on the rise. And it was now up to Jim Cairns to somehow navigate all of that and implement Whitlam's program. Are you hopeful that you will be able to cure the problems that are besetting the economic climate here? Well, I think it's my objective to contribute as much as I can to the curing of those problems, yes. But Jim Cairns seemed to have other things on his mind as well. He'd been meeting regularly with Junie Morosi, the woman who'd come to him about his book, and the two had grown close. So close, in fact, that he decided to hire her as his principal private secretary. That's the equivalent these days of a chief of staff. And the media went off. Miss Morosi, a great deal has been made out in the press about your friendship with Dr Cairns. Why do you think so many people were against you taking the job with Dr Cairns? I was so shocked at the reaction, <laughs> which, which was relentless. Back then, Australian politics was even blokier and whiter than it is today. And at that time, there certainly wasn't anyone else like Junie. She was born in Shanghai, for starters. She was tall, and she was a woman. It seems that's all anyone wanted to talk about. Well, at 41, Miss Junie Morosi looks more like 19. Tall, slim and stunningly attractive. She has the blood of nine different nationalities in her veins and if looks are anything to go by, she thrives on them all. Wherever she went, she was confronted with TV bulletins and newspaper headlines screaming her name. It was a bit unnerving to drive across Sydney and see my name on posters. And pretty soon, the scandal surrounding her had its very own name. The Morosi affair. Now looking back, it's like an Alice in Wonderland, you know? Uh, it, it was so ridiculous from my point of view. Whatever the media reaction to Junie's appointment, Whitlam himself didn't seem too worried. I have never mentioned uh, the suitability of Miss Morosi's employment to any of my ministers. Whitlam said it was Jim's business whom he hired, but his office, his staff hated me. Whitlam's staff? Yeah. Eric Walsh was Whitlam's press secretary. She was a good, she was very good looking, Sheila, but to give her such a senior position was immature and hopeless. Both Jeannie and Jim were married, and Jim denied that the relationship was sexual. Whatever the case, at a time when the Treasurer was supposed to be busy trying to address rising inflation and unemployment, Whitlam's staff were worried that the whole thing made the government look silly. I mean, the idea that he turned this uh, Morosi into his principal private secretary when he's deputy prime minister was bloody ridiculous. As you might have picked up, Eric Walsh has a pretty salty turn of phrase. 
I'll tell you what, God, I don't think you can use this, but uh, I remember mentioning it to God. I said, what a, an, an embarrassment it was. God said, the man's construct at 66. <laughs> it was embarrassing for the government that your deputy prime minister was behaving like a schoolboy. When Jim Cairns actually was a schoolboy, he lived a kind of Spartan life. Cairns grew up with an absent father and a mother who avoided physical affection. His relationship with his mother was sort of functional. Cairns inherited a strong work ethic and a healthy dose of self-repression. He dedicated himself to public service at the expense of his own desires. He'd spent his life doing the right thing, being a good Christian being kind, being helpful, and he was well rewarded for it. I mean, you know, to get to being acting prime minister, where do you go from there? The answer to that question for Jim Cairns was a deep psychological journey with Junie Morosi as his guide. She helped him realise that while he'd spent his life studying social movements and class struggle, he'd been neglecting another struggle, the struggle going on inside him. Junie was the only person that I could talk to who would develop my thinking. Now, what I learned from her alone was psychology. Unless you understand theory of human character and behaviour, you can understand nothing. Uh, She was the only one who brought that to me. And when Junie Morosi started teaching Jim how to embrace those parts of himself that he'd repressed, that's when Junie and Jim started going deep. And Junie introduced him to the philosophy of Wilhelm Reich. I, Wilhelm Reich, I happen to discover the life energy. He discovered that the function of the orgasm is to maintain an energy equilibrium. Reich was a psychoanalyst who worked with Freud, He's best known for his attempts to trap orgasmic sexual energy in boxes. As you can hear in that recording, Reich was an out-there guy, and Junie was a big fan of his work. Well, sexual energy is the life force. It opened up a whole different universe, if you like, to him. Kind of blew his mind. But there was more to Reich than just sex in a box. Junie says it was Reich's psychology that got Jim thinking about his own childhood. Yes, there was a whole part of his life that he had no knowledge of. Through Reich's writings, Junie taught Jim that there was room for him to think about his own psychology, his own desires, even while dedicating himself to public causes. Once he opened his mind to that possibility... He flew with it. It was the beginning of an immensely transformative period for Jim. I think he felt more liberated from a cage he did not know he was in. In case you were still wondering, decades later, Cairns admitted in a radio interview what everyone had suspected, that he and Junie did have a sexual relationship. Outside the Jim and Junie bubble, 
the economy was tanking. People waiting for jobs were notably despondent. For the third month in succession, unemployment has again increased. An economic crisis like this should be priority number one for a treasurer. Some of Jim Cairns' colleagues urged him to sack Junie Morosi and concentrate on his work. But Jim Cairns basically told them to get stuffed. He said, this is terribly unjust. And it's my business whom I appoint. As far as Junie and Jim were concerned, the uproar was because Junie was a woman in a powerful position. And to give in to it would send a message to all of the haters that they'd been right. So instead of folding, Junie and Jim doubled down. Instead of avoiding the media, which obviously hadn't worked so far, they went on the front foot. Junie did a feature with Women's Day, and Jim spoke in detail with a reporter about the nature of his relationship with Junie. He denied again that the relationship was sexual, but to work with people closely, he said, you do need to have a kind of love for them. We loved each other. There's got to be love in an office. If it is to work, of course, you've got to love your work. and You've got to love the people that you work with. And to me, the sexual overtones of the whole attack on me was convenient for them. It was none of their business. Junie and Jim were making this sort of ethical point in the abstract. You know, that in an egalitarian society, one must have a kind of love for one's fellow human, and that Jim had that for Junie. But the nuance of that argument got kind of lost in the media coverage. And the headline in the Sun newspaper just had the words, My love for Junie, with an image of Junie in a swimsuit. That's the sound of a research file that we have here at the office of all of the articles written about Junie Morosi from the 70s. The kind of sexism and racism, to be honest, through a lot of these stories is just it, like it hits you in the face. They publish these photos of her in a swimsuit. They call her Miss Junie. It is, I mean, it's totally outrageous. And the fact that this file is so thick gives you a sense of just how frenzied the media coverage was at the time. You know, people would come up to me and insult me to my face. In the street, in public, people would come up to you. Yeah. What would they say? Slut. You know, or some Asian bitch, you know, that sort of thing. Even I couldn't, couldn't believe the the intensity with which they hounded me. You'd think all of this would have been enough to wedge the two of them apart. But no matter what the newspapers were saying about them, how bad the economy was tanking, or what problems the government was having, Jeannie decided to tough it out. I lived through World War II in the Philippines. I'd had to go for days without food. This wasn't going to threaten my life. This was a piece of cake. Junie decided that she wasn't going anywhere. There was another scandal that would eventually make the so-called Morosi affair look like a minor distraction. But before I get to that, we need to talk about Willem for a second. Because in the end, all of this comes back to him in some way. The thing is, Whitlam gave his ministers a lot of room to move. And while some people saw this as a good thing... By the end of 1974, the government was really starting to look messy. 
And at a time when Whitlam needed all of his ministers to be working towards the same goal, it felt like the opposite was happening, that they were pulling in different directions instead of acting as a cohesive team. And Whitlam seemed either powerless to stop them or totally indifferent to the damage they were causing. Goff wasn't all that good on personal relations and testing people. Whitlam needed some help, and he got it from John Menadue. He had very strong ideas uh, himself, but um, he wasn't good, particularly good at managing staff. That was my experience. Menadue had been working for Rupert Murdoch, but he gave it up to work for the government. He was hired not on Whitlam's personal staff, but as a senior public servant. He was installed as the head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He set about trying to improve the way that the ministers interacted and made decisions, but he'd basically walked into a burning building. And not only that, John Menadue was about to witness the beginnings of this other big scandal. And for the government, this scandal never really went away. This second scandal started with a big dream for Australia's future. It was late 1974, and the man with the dream was a guy called Rex Connor. Rex Connor was the Minister for Resources, and he had a grand vision. He was a big man, physically. Politically, he was described as a strangler. And hey, What does that mean? I think many people decided they wouldn't physically tangle with Rex Connor. Rex Connor told Australia that the government was going to take back control of our natural resources and our mineral wealth. Full ownership and control of coal, oil and all other fuel and energy resources. To do this, he wanted the Australian government, or at least Australian-owned companies, to control the resources industry. He was convinced that doing this would help protect the country from global crises like the oil shock, boost government revenues and help fund the government's ambitious social agenda. He had this vision for Australia that few people had then and practically no people have today. Basically, he believed that we should be getting a better return for our resources. Energy is the key to the future. It will be the major economic issue of the next 20 years. Rex Connor wanted the government involved in doing it all. Developing mines. A major gas pipeline. Electrification of railways. Ports and uh, rail access to ports. Nuclear waste processing facilities. It was a very expensive and ambitious program. But the government was already spending a lot of money. The government was embarked on a very ambitious social welfare program, costing money. Housing, education, Medicare, improvement of pensions, equal pay. Increasingly, Gough came to the view that you couldn't sustain that uh, level of public expenditure and then add on top of it funding of major projects. Rex Connor realised that he'd need to find the money elsewhere. So he thought maybe some private individual or company would lend money to the government at a pretty good rate. He was in the market for a loan, a huge loan. And it was around this time that one government minister who was close with Rex Connor got a sniff of someone offering a very big loan. And this minister caught the scent at the 1974 Grecian Ball in Adelaide. We always we was going to that ball, me and my wife. An aspiring property developer called Jerry Caritas was working the crowd. And across the dance floor, he saw the government minister. His name was Clyde Cameron. As we was dancing, I went and said, hello, you better come home for a coffee tonight after, for a supper. 
so Clyde Cameron turns up for supper at Jerry's house after the ball. They get chatting, and Jerry says he knows a guy who has a spare $200 million he wants to invest. Jerry says, it's a pity, but that's a bit too much money for my business to handle. I can't use it. It's too much money for me. And Clyde Cameron is like, you know what? I know someone who might be interested. And then it's like midnight at this point, but he asks to use Jerry's phone. He used the phone. He rang about 12 o'clock. I said, whom are you ringing? That was the Minister for Minerals and Energy, Connor. Rex Connor. Rex Connor. Jerry Caritas was about to get caught up in Rex Connor's big dream. And Jerry had no idea what he was in for. Within a couple of days, Jerry Caritas was on a plane to Canberra. What was Rex Connor like when you first met him? Oh, I was shaking. I was 37. He was about 60 or 63. Heavy, tough, you name it. Jerry was struck by Rex's vision to create a secure future for Australia. He was totally on board. But that Adelaide loan, it actually fell through. And Jerry still really wanted to come through with the goods. By now, he felt like Connor was relying on him. So he started asking around, but no one in Australia had the kind of money that Connor was looking for. So Jerry started to talk to contacts overseas. He basically embarked on an international quest to fund Connor's vision. We went to Hong Kong. It was a journey filled with dodgy characters. He's a crook. He's not good. And bum steers. He was the wrong man. But eventually, Jerry Caritas found his guy. A Pakistani loan broker by the name of Tirath Kemlani. It's a name that even now is synonymous with the Whitlam government's worst decisions. But at that stage, for Rex Connor, the name symbolised hope. Because this loan, if it came through, it could fund the dream. How much was he saying he could deliver? Oh, four billion dollars. $4 billion. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute because while $4 billion is a huge sum now, in 1974, this was astronomical. In today's money, it's about $32 billion. So not only was it a huge amount of cash, but no Australian government had ever tried getting money for government programs from a source like this. Normally, Treasury would source loans from big US or European banks. Some guy called Tirath Kemlani was not exactly their usual moneylender. So late in 1974, Connor takes this strange proposal to Whitlam. And a meeting composing Connor, Whitlam, Murphy and Cairns uh, was held late in December to authorise Rex Connor to raise $4 billion through... Kemlani. This was another opportunity for Whitlam to intervene before things got out of control. But incredibly, Connor got the green light. Stupidly, ministers and Goff, somewhat reluctantly into the line, agreed that it should be pursued. Word was sent back to Kemlani to say, let's do it, let's seal the deal. But in response, Kemlani started getting flaky. And every time Jerry sent him a message to try and lock in the loan... Kemlani would ask for more time. All the time. Always asking for more time. Yes. And then the media got wind of the plan, and things went rapidly downhill. And we begin again tonight on the controversy over the government's handling of its overseas loan negotiation. We make no apologies for it. Sources of overseas loans 
do change. Today's unconventional sources are tomorrow's traditional sources. There were now two competing affairs, the Morosi affair and the Loans affair. Both were front-page news, and they were changing the way that people thought about the government. When it became public that this chap, Kim Lani, that would put a lot of people off. You know, it's the, it's the sort of trigger that you'd get in Australia today. About, oh, this chap from the Middle East, Kim Lani, foreigner, this is all suspicious. And they had good reason, I think, to be suspicious of, of Kim Lani, as it turned out. But not because his name was Kim Lani. No, that's right. Rex Connor's socialist dream was feeling further away than ever. Kem Lani, who'd been flaky to start with, was now being slippery. He always had excuses for why he couldn't finalise the loan. The Adelaide property developer, Jerry Caritas, was determined to find a solution. He felt like he'd given Connor his word, that he could deliver the money. By now, he felt close to Connor, and he felt it was up to him to go and get it. That man trusted me, and for me, was like a, more than a father. And I had to make sure wasn't the money anymore for me. Was honesty. Honesty that you'd promised something to Rex Connor and you wanted to keep that promise. That's right. Determined to keep his word, Jerry Caritas boarded a flight. Now this is where things got wild. Because this is where, instead of messing around with middlemen, Jerry decided it was time to go to the source. You see, Kemlani wasn't rich. He was just a guy who had connections in the Middle East, where many countries were flush with cash on the back of an oil boom. Jerry decided to visit the guy Kemlani had been trying to do the deal with, the guy who had the billions. And that guy was no less than King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. So Jerry got on a plane with $4,000 and no visa. Instead, he just had a personal letter signed by Rex Connor saying, please let this guy into your country. He was bound for Beirut, where he was to meet with King Faisal. King Faisal of, That's right. of Saudi Arabia. Of Saudi Arabia. At a stopover in Bahrain, he found someone to show him to a hotel. I hid the bag with the papers. And of course, he took me to hotel. Jerry wanted to freshen up, but he was worried about his bag of valuable documents. I had to go to the shower and have the bag like you read on TV, you know, to not pinch the papers. You had and a shower with the bag. <laughs> with the bag. To make sure you never lost sight of right. it. That's right. Little did Jerry know, he had much bigger things to worry about than someone stealing his bag. Because something terrible had happened to the king of Saudi Arabia, the guy he'd come to meet. And then he knocked the door and said, by the way, the kill King Faisal. King Faisal had just been shot. And he was assassinated. The assassination of King Faisal leaves the Arab world without one of its most senior, wealthy and powerful leaders. And I was supposed to have a dinner with him. Jerry had one last hope, his contact in Lebanon. So again, he got back on a plane. And as he landed, he saw a commotion on the tarmac. I look through the window and I can see black limousines coming right, left and centre with a machine gun on it and everything. So Jerry was wondering who the welcoming party was for and then he realised it was for him. I was looking to see who's the official. And my surprise was me. 
the official was me, the red carpet was for me. But then, as he was being escorted through the streets, he heard machine gun fire, and it dawned on him that he'd landed right in the middle of a war zone. Say, I didn't know it was a bloody war. He needed to get out of there. His search for a loan had turned into a dangerous circus, and he knew it. So he bailed. Now empty-handed, Jerry Caritas had to go back and see Rex Connor. When I gone in, I was an happy man. I saw a different Rex Connor. He had his legs on his table, coffee table. His eyes was red. Rex Connor knew that his big dream for Australia was starting to fall apart. He felt defeated. And he said to Jerry, I want to tell you something. I don't want to read on the papers. I'm going to resign. Jerry couldn't believe it. This guy, whose nickname was The Strangler, giving up, not on his watch. I put my hand on a table and I break it just about. No way you're going to resign. They're winning then. You've done nothing wrong. You've done something for your country and your people, not for your benefit. And I kept him in. So after your pep talk, he decided not to resign. Not to resign. So Rex Connor, just like Jim Cairns, decided to stick it out. Not even widespread media outrage, political scandal and the risk of extreme damage to the government's interests, nothing would get in the way of him and his grand mission. For better or worse, these guys were determined. So all this stuff is happening late 74, early 1975, and the government is beset by these two scandals, the Loans Affair and the Morosi Affair, and none of the main players are backing down. And as if things couldn't get any worse, right in the middle of it all, at Christmas time in 1974, a cyclone was cutting a path towards Darwin. A cyclone is imminent. The cyclone made landfall at 3.30am on Christmas Day. It was one of the worst tropical cyclones Australia had ever seen. My husband's leg was crushed and the baby was hurt real bad. We just have to get out and that's all. There's just nothing here in our house. There's, there's nothing left of it. It's just flat. At least 90% of homes in Darwin were demolished or badly damaged. 65 people died. John Menadieu flew to Darwin to survey the damage. I was just, I'd never seen a sight like it of houses demolished, um, telegraph wires, telegraph poles just uh, screwed up uh, like pieces of string. By this point, there was so much going wrong for Whitlam. Inflation was running at 20%. Two huge scandals, the Morosi affair and the Loans affair, were brewing. And now Gough Whitlam was about to take a huge hit to his popularity. Cyclone Tracy had killed dozens of people and flattened Darwin. And people really wanted to see the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, take charge, get in the gumboots and show everyone that he cared. But it took him a while to get to Darwin. Because instead of keeping a lid on the scandals and fending off the growing criticisms of his government, he was in the middle of a five-week trip through Asia, Europe and the UK. And at that moment, he was listening to Christmas carols at Cambridge. I was on the phone to, to him in the, in the UK and described it to him uh, as best I could. And uh, 
one of my objects was to pers- try and persuade him that he should return. And how are you, how are you managing that argument? Not well. <laughs> he was reluctant to come back. He eventually agreed with Menadue and decided to come back. But when he got there, the welcome was nothing like he'd expected. He was booed and heckled because, you know, it was big news in Australia what had happened. A narrative was developing about Whitlam, that he was out of touch, that his ministers were off the leash and his government was totally dysfunctional. Now that he was back, he took care of the reconstruction effort. But his next move did little to change the narrative because instead of staying at home and getting things under control, he was itching to get back to his overseas trip. And once again, we um, had to go to work, colleagues and I, to try and persuade him that really he should stay. Whitlam had returned to Sydney to deal with some other government business and was at home at the PM's residence. It's summer at this point. And I remember I went down, he was sitting on the, lying on a lilo at Kirribilli. On a lilo. At the Prime Minister's uh, residence there on a lilo. And I, I went down in my grey flannel suit and perhaps the last attempt to persuade him that uh, why not stay here in Sydney, good weather, everyone's on a holiday, you have a holiday as well on a lilo, but stay in Sydney but please stay. And he said, comrade, comrade, if I'm going to put up with these fuckwits in the Labor Party, I've got to have my trips. And off he went. Those around Gough Whitlam were beginning to see his weaknesses, his reluctance to haul his team into line, his inability to sense big political risks. And he was about to miss the biggest risk of all to his government. It came in the form of an ambitious man who'd just been installed as the Queen's representative in Australia. We're broadcasting from Parliament House, Canberra. I, Sir John Robert Kerr, do swear that I will well and truly serve Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I didn't know the deceit that was being conjured up. So help me God. In the next episode of The Eleventh, we hear allegations about the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, that have never been aired before. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. If you've got an interest in how history can help us explain the here and now, try Rear Vision – It's a podcast which promises to put contemporary events in their historical context and answer the question, how exactly did it come to this? What's really behind the riots in Hong Kong? Does Donald Trump really want to buy Greenland? Strategically, it's interesting. Who exactly is Boris Johnson? We're leaving on the 31st of October. No ifs or buts. And how did he become Britain's Brexit leader? Rear Vision gives you the story, the background that makes sense of the news headlines. Rear Vision, wherever you get your podcasts or hear it now on the ABC Listen app.